Chapter fifty four of a popular history of France from the earliest times, volume six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A popular history of France from the earliest times, volume six, by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter fifty four. Louis the fifteenth, the seven years' war. Ministry of the Duke of Choiseul, seventeen forty eight to seventeen seventy four. Part three. Three years later, in 1769, the King of Spain, Charles III, less moderate than the government of Louis XV, expelled with violence all the members of the Society of Jesus from his territory, thus exciting the Parliament of Paris to fresh severities against the French Jesuits, and on the 20th of July, 1773, the Court of Rome itself, yielding at last to pressure from nearly all the sovereigns of Europe, solemnly pronounced the dissolution of the order. Quote, recognizing that the members of this society have not a little troubled the christian commonwealth and that for the welfare of christendom it were better that the order should disappear the last houses still offering shelter to the jesuits were closed the general ricci was imprisoned at the castle of st angelo and the society of jesus which had been so powerful for nearly three centuries took refuge in certain distant lands seeking in oblivion and silence fresh strength for the struggle which it was one day to renew. The parliaments were triumphant, but their authority, which seemed never to have risen so high or penetrated so far in the government of the state, was already tottering to its base. Once more the strife was about to begin between the kingly power and the magistracy. Once more the strife was about to begin between the kingly power and the magistracy, whose last victory was destined to scarcely precede its downfall. The financial embarrassments of the state were growing more serious every day. To the debts left by the Seven Years' War were added the new wants developed by the necessities of commerce and by the progress of civilization. The Board of Works, a useful institution founded by Louis XV, was everywhere seeing to the construction of new roads, at the same time repairing the old ones. The forced labour for these operations fell almost exclusively on the peasantry. The Parliament of Normandy was one of the first to protest against, quote, the impositions of forced labour and the levies of money which took place in the district on pretext of repairs and maintenance of roads without legal authority. Quote, France is a land which devours its inhabitants, cried the Parliament of Paris. The Parliament of Pau refused to enregister the edicts. The Parliament of Brittany joined the estates in protesting against the Duke of Aiguillon, the then governor, quote, the which hath made upon the liberties of the province one of those assaults which are not possible, save when the crown believes itself to be secure of impunity, quote. The noblesse having yielded in the states, the Parliament of Rennes gave in their resignation in a body. Five of its members were arrested. At their head was the Attorney-General, M. de la Chalotais author of a very remarkable paper against the Jesuits. It was necessary to form at Saint-Malo a king's chamber to try the accused. M. de Calonne, an ambitious young man, the declared foe of M. de la Chalotais, was appointed attorney-general on the commission. He pretended to have discovered grave facts against the accused. He was suspected of having invented them. Public feeling was at its height. The magistrates loudly proclaimed the theory of classes, according to which all the parliaments of France, responsible one for another, formed in reality but one body, distributed by delegation throughout the principal towns of the realm. 
the king convoked a bed of justice, and on the 2nd of March, 1766, he repaired to the Parliament of Paris. Quote, what has passed in my parliaments of Pau and of Rennes has nothing to do with my other parliaments, said Louis XV in a firm tone, to which the ears of the Parliament were no longer accustomed. Quote, I have behaved in respect of those two courts as comported with my authority, and I am not bound to account to anybody. I will not permit the formation of my kingdom of an association which might reduce to a confederacy of opposition the natural bond of identical duties and common obligations nor the introduction into the monarchy of an imaginary body which could not but disturb its harmony. The magistracy does not form a body or order separate from the three orders of the kingdom. The magistrates are my officers. In my person alone resides the sovereign power, of which the special characteristic is the spirit of counsel, justice, and reason. It is from me alone that my courts have their existence and authority. It is to me alone that the legislative power belongs without dependence and without partition. My people is but one with me, and the rights and interests of the nation, whereof men dare to make a body separate from the monarch, are necessarily united with my own, and rest only in my hands." This haughty affirmation of absolute power, a faithful echo of Cardinal Richelieu's grand doctrines, succeeded for a while in silencing the representations of the parliaments, but it could not modify the course of opinion passionately excited in favour of M. de la Chalotais. On the 24th of December, 1766, after having thrice changed the jurisdiction and the judges, the king annulled the whole procedure by an act of his supreme authority. Quote, we shall have the satisfaction, said the edict, of finding nobody guilty, and nothing will remain for us but to take such measures as shall appear best adapted to completely restore and maintain tranquillity in a province from which we have on so many occasions had proofs of zeal for our service." M. de la Chalotais and his comrades were exiled to Sainte. They demanded a trial and a legal justification, which were refused. Quote, it is enough for them to know that their honour is intact, the king declared. A parliament was imperfectly reconstructed at Rennes. Quote, it is de Guillon's bailiff court, was the contemptuous saying in Brittany. The governor had to be changed. Under the administration of the Duke of Duras, the agitation subsided in the province. The magistrates, who had resigned, resumed their seats. M. de la Chalotais and his son, M. de Caraduc, alone remained excluded by order of the king. The restored parliament immediately made a claim on their behalf, accompanying the request with a formal accusation against the Duke of Aiguillon. The state supported the Parliament. Quote, what, sir, said the remonstrance, they are innocent, and yet you punish them. It is a natural right that nobody should be punished without a trial. We have property in our honour, our lives, and our liberty, just as you have property in your crown. We would spill our blood to preserve your rights, but on your side preserve us ours. Sir, the province on its knees before you asks you for justice. End quote. A royal ordinance forbade any proceedings against the Duke of Aiguillon, and enjoined silence on the parties. Parliament having persisted, and declaring that the accusations against the Duke of Aiguillon attached, or entachaient, his honour, Louis XV, egged on by the Chancellor, M. de Maupeou, an ambitious, bold, bad man, repaired in person to the office, and had all the papers relating to the procedure removed before his eyes. The strife was becoming violent. The Duke of Choiseul, still premier minister, but sadly shaken in the royal favour, 
disapproved of the severities employed against the magistracy, all the blows dealt at the parliaments recoiled upon him. King Louis XV had taken a fresh step in the shameful irregularity of his life. On the 15th of April, 1764, Madame de Pompadour had died, at the age of forty-two, of heart disease. As frivolous as she was deeply depraved and base-minded in her calculating easiness of virtue, she had more ambition than comported with her mental calibre or her force of character. She had taken it into her head to govern, by turns promoting and overthrowing the ministers, herself proffering advice to the king, sometimes to good purpose, but more often still with a levity as fatal as her obstinacy. Less clever, less ambitious, but more potent than Madame de Pompadour over the faded passions of a monarch aged before his time, the new favourite, Madame du Berry, made the least scrupulous blush at the lowness of her origin and the irregularity of her life. It was nevertheless in her circle that the plot was formed against the Duke of Choiseul. Bold, ambitious, restless, presumptuous, sometimes in his views and his hopes, the minister had his heart too nearly in the right place, and too proper a spirit to submit to either the yoke of Madame du Berry or that of the shameless courtiers who made use of her influence. Chancellor Maupeyou, the Duke of Aiguillon, and the new Controller-General, Abbé Terray, a man of capacity, invention, and no scruple at all, at last succeeded in triumphing over the force of habit, the only thing that had any real effect upon the king's listless mind. After twelve years for a long while undisputed power, after having held in his hands the whole government of France and a piece of Europe, M. de Choiseul received from the king on the 24th of December, 1770, a letter in these terms, quote, Cousin, the dissatisfaction caused me by your services forces me to banish you to Chanteloup, whither you will repair within twenty-four hours. I should have sent you much further off, but for the particular regard I have for Madame de Choiseul, in whose health I feel great interest. Take care your conduct does not force me to alter my mind. Whereupon I pray God, cousin, to have you in his holy and worthy keeping. The thunderbolt which came striking the Duke of Choiseul called forth a fresh sign of the times. The fallen minister was surrounded in his disgrace with marks of esteem and affection on the part of the whole court. The princes themselves and the greatest lords felt it an honour to pay him a visit at his castle of Chanteloup. He there displayed a magnificence which ended by swallowing up his wife's immense fortune, already much encroached upon during his term of power. Nothing was too much for the proud devotion and passionate affection of the Duchess of Choiseul. She declined the personal favours which the king offered her, setting all her husband's friends the example of a fidelity which was equally honourable to them and to him. Acute observers read a tale of the growing weakness of absolute power in the crowd which still flocked to a minister in disgrace. The Duke of Choiseul remained a power even during a banishment which was to last as long as his life. With M. de Choiseul disappeared the sturdiest prop of the parliaments. In vain had the king ordered the magistrates to resume their functions and administer justice. Quote, there is nothing left for your parliament, replied the premier president, but to perish with the laws since the fate of the magistrate should go with that of the state. Madame du Berry, on a hint from her able advisers, had caused to be placed in her apartments a fine portrait of Charles I by Van Dyck. Quote, France, she was always reiterating to the king with vulgar familiarity, France, thy parliament will cut off thy head too. 
a piece of ignorant confusion due even more to analogy of name than to the generous but vain efforts often attempted by the french magistracy in favour of sound doctrines of government the parliament of paris fell sitting upon curule chairs like the old senators of rome during the invasion of the gauls the political spirit the collected and combative ardour the indomitable resolution of the english parliament freely elected representatives of a free people were unknown to the french magistracy despite the courage and moral elevation it had so often shown its strength had been wasted in a constantly useless strife it had withstood richelieu and mazarin already reduced to submission by cardinal fleury it was about to fall beneath the equally bold and skilful blows of chancellor maupeou notwithstanding the little natural liking and the usual distrust he felt for parliaments the king still hesitated madame du berry managed to inspire him with fears for his person and he yielded during the night between the nineteenth and twentieth of january seventeen seventy one musketeers knocked at the doors of all the magistrates they were awakened in the king's name at the same time being ordered to say whether they would consent to resume their service no equivocation possible no margin for those developments of their ideas which are so dear to parliamentary minds it was a matter of signing yes or no surprised in their slumbers but still firm in their resolution of resistance the majority of the magistrates signed no they were immediately sent into banishment their offices were confiscated those members of the parliament from whom weakness or astonishment had surprised a yes retracted as soon as they were assembled and underwent the same fate as their colleagues on the twenty third of january members delegated by the grand council charged with the provisional administration of justice were installed in the palace by the chancellor himself the registrar-in-chief the ushers the attorneys declined or eluded the exercise of their functions the advocates did not come forward to plead the court of Ed, headed by lamoignon de malherbe protested against the attack made on the great bodies of the state quote, ask the nation themselves sir said the president to mark your displeasure with the parliament of paris it is proposed to rob them themselves of the essential rights of a free people the court of ed was suppressed like the parliament six superior councils in the towns of arras blois chalon sur marne lyon clermont and poitiers parcelled out amongst them the immense jurisdiction of paris the members of the grand council assisted by certain magistrates of small esteem definitively took the places of the banished to whom compensation was made for their offices the king appeared in person on the thirteenth of april seventeen seventy one at the new parliament the chancellor read out the edicts quote, you have just heard my intentions said louis the fifteenth i desire that they may be conformed to i order you to commence your duties I forbid any deliberation contrary to my wishes, and any representations in favour of my former Parliament, for I shall never change." One single prince of the blood, the Count of La Marche, son of the Prince of Conti, had been present at the bed of justice. All had protested against the suppression of the Parliament. Quote, it is one of the most useful boons for monarchs, and of those most precious to Frenchmen, said the protest of the princes to have bodies of citizens perpetual and irremovable avowed at all times by the kings and the nation who in whatever form and under whatever denomination they may have existed concentrate in themselves the general right of all subjects to invoke the law quote, 
sir by the law you are king and you cannot reign but by it said the parliament of dijon's declaration drawn up by one of the mortar-cap presidents or president amortier the gifted president de brosse the princes were banished the provincial parliaments mutilated like that of paris or suppressed like that of rouen which was replaced by two superior councils ceased to furnish a centre for critical and legal opposition amidst the rapid decay of absolute power the transformation and abasement of the parliaments by chancellor maupeou were a skilful and bold attempt to restore some sort of force and unity to the kingly authority it was thus that certain legitimate claims had been satisfied the extent of jurisdictions had been curtailed the saleability of offices had been put down the expenses of justice had been lessened voltaire had for a long time past been demanding these reforms and he was satisfied with them Quote, have not the parliaments often been persecuting and barbarous he wrote i wonder that the welsh i e barbarians as voltaire playfully called the french should take the part of those insolent and intractable sit he added however quote, nearly all the kingdom is in a boil and consternation the ferment is as great in the provinces as in paris itself the ferment subsided without having reached the mass of the nation the majority of the princes made it up with the court the dispossessed magistrates returned one after another to paris astonished and mortified to see justice administered without them and advocates pleading before the maupeou government the chancellor had triumphed and remained master it was occupied with a question more important still than the administration of justice the ever-increasing disorder in the finances was no longer checked by the enregistering of edicts the comptroller-general abbe terray had recourse shamelessly to every expedient of a bold imagination to fill the royal treasury it was necessary to satisfy the ruinous demands of madame du berry and of the depraved courtiers who thronged about her successive bad harvests and the high price of bread still further aggravated the position it was known that the king had a taste for private speculation he was accused of trading in grain and of buying up the stores required for feeding the people the odious rumour of this famine pact as the bitter saying was soon spread amongst the mob before its fall the parliament of rouen had audaciously given expression to these dark accusations it had ordered proceedings to be taken against the monopolists a royal injunction put a veto upon the prosecutions Quote, this prohibition from the crown changes our doubts to certainty wrote the parliament to the king himself when we said that the monopoly existed and was protected god forbid sir that we should have had your majesty in our eye but possibly we had some of those to whom you distribute your authority silence was imposed upon the parliaments but without producing any serious effect upon public opinion which attributed to the king the principal interest in a great private concern bound to keep up a certain parity in the price of grain contempt grew more and more profound the king and madame du berry by their shameful lives maupeou and abbe terray by destroying the last bulwarks of the public liberties were digging with their own hands the abyss in which the old french monarchy was about to be soon engulfed for a long while pious souls had formed great hopes of the dauphin honest scrupulous sincerely virtuous without the austerity and extensive views of the duke of burgundy he had managed to live aloof without intrigue and without open opposition preserving towards the king an attitude of often sorrowful respect 
and all the while remaining the support of the clergy and their partisans in their attempts and their aspirations the queen mary lekzinska a timid and proudly modest woman resigned to her painful situation lived in the closest intimacy with her son and still more with her daughter-in-law mary josepha of saxony though the daughter of that elector who had but lately been elevated to the throne of poland and had vanquished king stanislaus the sweetness the tact the rare faculties of the dauphiness had triumphed over all obstacles she had three sons much reliance was placed upon the influence she had managed to preserve with the king and on the dominion she exercised over her husband's mind in vain had the dauphin distracted at the woes of france over and over again solicited from the king the honour of serving him at the head of the army the jealous anxiety of madame de pompadour was at one with the cold indifference of louis the fifteenth as to leaving the heir to the throne in the shade the prince felt it deeply in spite of his pious resignation Quote, a dauphin he would say must needs appear a useless body and a king strive to be everybody or un homme universel whilst trying to beguile his tedium at the camp of compiegne the dauphin it is said overtaxed his strength and died at the age of thirty-six on the twentieth of december seventeen sixty five profoundly regretted by the bulk of the nation who knew his virtues without troubling themselves like the court and the philosophers about the stiffness of his manners and his complete devotion to the cause of the clergy the new dauphin who would one day be louis the sixteenth was still a child the king had brought him into his closet quote, poor france he said sadly a king of fifty-five and a dauphin of eleven the dauphiness and queen mary letzinska soon followed the dauphin to the tomb seventeen sixty seven seventeen sixty eight the king thus left alone and scared by the repeated deaths around him appeared for a while to be drawn closer to his daughters for whom he always retained some sort of affection a mixture of weakness and habit one of them madame louise who was deeply pious left him to enter the convent of the carmelites he often went to see her and granted her all the favours she asked but by this time madame du berry had become all-powerful to secure to her the honours of presentation at court the king personally solicited the ladies with whom he was intimate in order to get them to support his favourite on this new stage when the youthful marie antoinette archduchess of austria and daughter of maria theresa whose marriage the duke of choiseul had negotiated arrived in france in seventeen seventy to espouse the dauphin madame de berry appeared alone with the royal family at the banquet given at la muette on the occasion of the marriage after each reaction of religious fright and transitory repentance after each warning from god that snatched him for an instant from the depravity of his life the king plunged more deeply than before into shame madame du berry was to reign as much as louis the fifteenth before his fall the duke of choiseul had made a last effort to revive abroad that fortune of france which he saw sinking at home without his being able to apply any effective remedy he had vainly attempted to give colonies once more to france by founding in french guiana settlements which had been unsuccessfully attempted by a rouennese company as early as sixteen thirty four the enterprise was badly managed the numerous colonists of very diverse origin and worth were cast without resources upon a territory as unhealthy as fertile no preparations had been made to receive them the majority died of disease and want 
new france henceforth belonged to the english and the great hopes which had been raised of replacing it in equinoctial france as guiana was named soon vanished never to return an attempt made about the same epoch at st lucie was attended with the same result the great ardour and the rare aptitude for distant enterprises which had so often manifested themselves in france from the fifteenth to the seventeenth century seemed to be henceforth extinguished only the colonies of the antilles which had escaped from the misfortunes of war and were by this time recovered from their disasters offered any encouragement to the patriotic efforts of the duke of choiseul he had been more fortunate in europe than in the colonies henceforth corsica belonged to france in spite of the french occupations from seventeen o eight to seventeen fifty six in spite of the refusals with which cardinal fleury had but lately met their appeals the corsicans newly risen against the oppression of genoa had sent a deputation to versailles to demand the recognition of their republic offering to pay the tribute but lately paid annually to their tyrannical protectress the hero of corsican independence pascal paoli secretly supported by england had succeeded for several years past not only in defending his country's liberty but also in governing and at the same time civilizing it this patriotic soul and powerful mind who had managed to profit by the energetic passions of his compatriots whilst momentarily repressing their intestine quarrels dreamed of an ideal constitution for his island he sent to ask for one of j j rousseau who was still in switzerland and whom he invited to corsica the philosophical chimeras of paoli soon vanished before a piece of crushing news the genoese weary of struggling unsuccessfully against the obstinate determination of the corsicans and unable to clear off the debts which they had but lately incurred to louis the fifteenth had proposed to m de choiseul to cede to france their ancient rights over corsica as security for their liabilities a treaty signed at versailles on the fifteenth of may seventeen sixty eight authorized the king to perform all acts of sovereignty in the places and forts of corsica a separate article accorded to genoa an indemnity of two millions a city arose in corsica paoli resolved to defend the independence of his country against france as he had defended it against genoa for several months now french garrisons had occupied the places still submitting to genoa when they would have extended themselves into the interior paoli barred their passage he bravely attacked m de chauvelin the king's lieutenant-general who had just landed with a proclamation from louis the fifteenth to his new subjects quote, the corsican nation does not let itself be bought and sold like a flock of sheep sent to market said the protest of the republic's supreme council fresh troops from france had to be asked for under the orders of count vaux they triumphed without difficulty over the corsican patriots mustering at the bridge of golo for a last effort they made a rampart of their dead the wounded had lain down amongst the corpses to give the survivors time to effect their retreat the town of corte the seat of republican government capitulated before long england had supplied paoli with munitions and arms he had hoped more from the promises of the government and the national jealousy against france Quote, the ministry is too weak and the nation too wise to make war on account of corsica said an illustrious judge lord mansfield in vain did burke exclaim quote, corsica as a province of france is for me an object of alarm the house of commons approved of the government's conduct and england contented herself with offering to the vanquished paoli a sympathetic hospitality 
he left Corsica on an English frigate, accompanied by most of his friends, and it is in Westminster Abbey that he lies, after the numerous vicissitudes of his life, which fluctuated throughout the revolutions of his native land, from England to France, and from France to England, to the day when Corsica, proud of having given a master to France and the revolution, became definitively French with Napoleon. Corsica was to be the last conquest of the old French monarchy, great or little, magnificent or insignificant, from Richelieu to the Duke of Choiseul, France had managed to preserve her territorial acquisitions. In America and in Asia, Louis XV had shamefully lost Canada and the Indies. In Europe, the diplomacy of his ministers had given to the kingdom Lorraine and Corsica. The day of insensate conquests, ending in a diminution of territory, had not yet come. In the great and iniquitous dismemberment which was coming, France was to have no share. Profound disquietude was beginning to agitate Europe. The King of Poland, Augustus III, had died in 1763, leaving the unhappy country over which he had reigned a prey to internal anarchy, ever increasing and systematically fanned by the avidity or jealousy of the great powers, its neighbors. Quote, as it is to the interest of the two monarchs of Russia and Prussia that the Polish Commonwealth should preserve its right to free election of a king, said the secret treaty concluded in 1764 between Frederick II and the Empress Catherine, and that no family should possess itself of the elective throne of that country, the two undermentioned majesties engaged to prevent, by all means in their power, Poland from being despoiled of its right of election and transformed into an hereditary kingdom, they mutually promised to oppose in concert, and if necessary, by force of arms, all plans and designs which may tend thereto as soon as discovered. A second article secured to the dissidents, as Protestants and Greeks were called in Poland, the protection of the King of Prussia and of the Empress, quote, who will make every effort to persuade, by strong and friendly representations, the King and the Commonwealth of Poland to restore to those persons the rights, privileges, and prerogatives they have acquired there and which have been accorded them in the past as well in ecclesiastical as in civil matters but have since been for the most part circumscribed or unjustly taken away but should it be impossible to attain that end at once the contracting parties will content themselves with seeing that whilst waiting for more favourable times and circumstances the aforesaid persons are put beyond the reach of the wrongs and oppression under which they are at present groaning in order to remain masters of poland and to prevent it from escaping the dissolution with which it was threatened by its internal dissensions, Frederick and Catherine, who were secretly pursuing different and often contrary courses, united to impose on the Diet a native prince. Quote, I and my ally, the Empress of Russia, said the King of Prussia, have agreed to promote the selection of a Piast, or Pole, which would be useful and at the same time glorious for the nation. In vain had Louis XV, by secret policy, sought for a long while to pave the way for the election of the prince of conti to the throne of poland the influence of russia and of prussia carried the day prince poniatowski late favourite of the empress catherine was elected by the polish diet in discouragement and sadness four thousand nobles only had responded to the letters of convocation the new king stanislaus augustus handsome intelligent amiable cultivated but feeble in character and fatally pledged to Russia, sought to rally round him the different parties, and to establish at last, in the midst of general confusion, a regular and a strong government. 
he was supported in this patriotic task by the influence ever potent in poland of the tsartoriskis the far-seeing vigilance of frederick the second did not give them time to act Quote, poland must be left in her lethargy he had said to the russian ambassador saldern Quote, it is of importance he wrote to catherine that her majesty the empress who knows perfectly well her own interests and those of her friends and allies should give orders of the most precise kind to her ambassador at warsaw to oppose any novelty in the form of government and generally speaking the establishment of a permanent council the preservation of the commissions of war and of the treasury the power of the king and the unlimited concession on the prince's part of ability to distribute offices according to his sole will the useful reforms being thus abandoned and the king's feeble power radically shaken religious discord came to fill up the cup of disorder and to pave the way for the dismemberment as well as definitive ruin of unhappy poland subjected for a long time past to an increasing oppression which was encouraged by a fanatical and unenlightened clergy the polish dissidents had conceived great hopes on the accession of stanislaus augustus they claimed not only liberty of conscience and of worship but also all the civil and political rights of which they were deprived Quote, it is no question of establishing the free exercise of different religions in poland wrote frederick to catherine it is necessary to reduce the question to its true issue the demand of the dissident noblesse and obtain for them the equality they demand together with participation in all acts of sovereignty this was precisely what the clergy and the catholic noblesse were resolved never to grant in spite of support from the empress and the king of prussia the demand of the dissidents was formally rejected by the diet of seventeen sixty six at the diet of seventeen sixty seven count repnin catherine's ambassador and the real head of the government in poland had four of the most recalcitrant senators carried off and sent into exile in russia the diet terrified disorganized immediately pronounced in favour of the dissidents by the modifications recently introduced into the constitution of their country the polish nobles had lost their liberum veto unanimity of suffrages was no longer necessary in the diet the foreign powers were able to insolently impose their will upon it the privileges of the noblesse as well as their traditional faith were attacked at the very foundations religious fanaticism and national independence boiled up at the same time in every heart the discontent secretly fanned by the agents of frederick burst out sooner than the skilful weavers of the plot could have desired with sufficient intensity and violence to set fire to the four corners of poland by a bold surprise the confederates gained possession of krakow and of the fortress of bar in podolia there it was that they swore to die for the sacred cause of catholic poland for more than a century in the face of many mistakes and many misfortunes the poles have faithfully kept that oath End of chapter fifty four part three